After over 10 years practicing internal medicine at Rush University Medical Center, Dr. Jill Weiner knows firsthand what severe stress and burnout feel like. In the midst of her own burnout, she was introduced to conscious health meditation, and it had a profound effect on her resilience and reactivity. After two years of coursework, Dr. Weiner completed her three-month teacher training in Rishikesh, India in April 2016, and now teaches meditation, among other stress reduction techniques, full-time, primarily to physicians something we could all use a bit more of right now. This is an introduction to meditation for the unindoctrinated. She starts by defining meditation and then delves into the different types and why she has chosen to teach conscious health meditation over all of the others. She's a skeptic turn believer and helps us to start heading in that direction. In addition to meditation, she also teaches tapping, similar to exposure therapy, and we briefly discussed this as well. Dr. Weiner is eight-plus years of practicing and teaching stress reduction modalities such as meditation and tapping, combined with the teaching and mentoring skills developed during her academic medical career, her personal experience with burnout, and her intimate understanding of the healthcare system make her uniquely suited to teach meditation and other stress reduction techniques to healthcare professionals like us from all fields. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Jill Weiner, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Let's start off with your origin story. How did someone start out being a hospitalist internist and then become the internist's yogi? Oh, such a lovely story. Uh, for me, it started with burnout. Um, in 2011, they changed the residency work hours. Um, and I don't know where when you started, when you did training, but a lot of the work ended up falling on the attendings. And that was my five-year mark into being an attending. And so I think it was a perfect storm. A bunch of other stuff had happened leading up to that. So I got really burnt out. Like it hit me like a Mack truck. It was pretty intense. And I was crying every day. One little bad thing would happen and I would just get up and leave our our office where we'd all be writing our, our notes and doing our documentation and go home. I just had no... I had the shortest views and I had no ability to adapt to anything that happened to me. I wasn't yelling at people. I was just more like defeated and sad and crying. And, um, and so around that time, I met someone who told me they meditated twice a day. And previous to that point, I had been the most skeptical unspiritual type A doctor. Um, I had done some yoga before, but nothing, nothing crazy. And, but something in me said, sure, I'll go hear your teacher speak. And when I went to go hear the teacher speak, he's this yoga teacher from LA who was in town. Yoga teacher turned into a meditation teacher. And I, everything he said was just like speaking to my soul. I don't know how to describe it any other way. And I showed up, like I didn't Google him. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But I just was wearing my skeptical doctor pants and I was like, whatever, I'm smarter than everyone. I know all the things about all the things and I'm going to go there and I'll just walk out and not have to do anything because I know better. 
And uh, he started talking about stress and the way it affects our physiology and the way it affects our behavior. And that feeling of constantly being almost out of gas, that feeling of constantly being running on fumes. Um, and he just spoke about that in a way that helped me understand how I, why and how I had been feeling for the last couple of months before that. His course started the next day. I had evening plan. It's four nights in a row, four, four days in a row, about two hours, one and a half to two hours each session. But I was like, start me yesterday. I'm signing up. It was a week salary. So I was also very, very panicked about having to spend a lot of money on something that I didn't know anything about. No one I knew meditated. This was, we, we've come a long way in, in nine years. There, there was no one I knew, at least in my community, that was meditating. And I signed up for this class and took it. So that for me, and, and what I noticed was, oh my God, these meditations are easy to do. It's not mindfulness. It's almost the complete opposite of that in terms of the actual practice. So it's easy to do. You're sitting comfortably with your back supported. You're not trying to control your mind at all. Um, not fighting with what your mind does naturally. And I was having meditation experiences on the second day of class. So I was getting this like carrot approach rather than a stick approach that made me realize I'm actually doing something real and holy smokes, I cannot believe this was something that's been in the world this whole time that I was just too skeptical or closed to realize. Um, and I was able to fit it into my day. I, we carried pagers on us 24 hours a day um, in my hospitalist job depending on what we what service we were on. But I was able to fit it into my day and make it work. And I actually look forward to meditating. And then my burnout went away. I mean, I started having benefits really quickly. I lost my road rage in three weeks. Um, after a couple months, I just, I wasn't crying anymore. I wasn't sad. I was, And you I, were I living in Chicago at, at the time, right? Yeah, I was working at Rush in Chicago. And, right, you know, so had, downtown Chicago, road rage... It's probably different from rural Alabama road rage, right? Like, yeah, it's not. This is, it's not this is a lot of traffic. This is no Yeah, joke. and I wasn't like a psychopath. I wasn't like plowing into people and stuff, but I just didn't get that like panic anymore. And then I started to be like, oh, actually the reason why I'm panicking right now is because I'm late. Because <laughs> I left the house late. So this is kind of my fault. So me getting all freaked out about it isn't going to help the situation. I should have left earlier. And then usually when you get there and you're late, the other person is even later and it all works out. So I, I, st- I just kind of stopped, mostly unconsciously stopped sweating the small stuff, but also was able to keep my head in moments where I would have been losing it. And, and sometimes also do an additional talking myself down. So I felt great. You know, my burnout was great. I wasn't at all thinking about anything else other than meditating. It's 20 minutes twice a day. All, all I was like thinking was I'll meditate 20 minutes twice a day for the rest of my life because I'm never going back to how I felt before. And then went on a retreat in India with my teacher and had some pretty incredible experiences there. And like, you know, kind of, oh my God, even more be amazing beyond what I had already been experiencing. And at that moment, I was the, the stress, you know, compared to the rest of the group on the retreat, I was the closed-minded doctor still. I was still very much like in my doctor world. And he said, have you ever thought about becoming a teacher? And I was like, no, I'm, not, I'm a doctor. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm, I'm going to be a hospitalist forever. And, uh, but then I thought about it and I thought, okay, well, I'll like practice medicine and teach meditation. And the the teacher training is three months in India. So it's a very intense training process. Plus it's, um, a couple years of prep work, uh, advanced coursework beforehand. So this is a pretty major undertaking. And so that was going to be my plan. Hospitalist, you know, maybe 0.6 FTE and then, and then teach meditation the rest of the time. 
Then I had a really cool opportunity to move overseas to China. And I had started to get some sort of itch of like, hmm, maybe I'm going to be 65 one day and have been happy enough, but but was starting to think that there was something else for me. Um, I'd be happy enough practicing medicine forever, but something else is out there. And I had the opportunity to move to China. And that's actually why I left my hospitalist job, moved to China for a few months, then went to India for my teacher training. And then um, that once I had been out of medicine for about six months and um, did my teacher training and realized I had a, I had a skill, <laughs> I had something other than medicine that I could do that I was so, so passionate about that I had personally experienced how life-changing it could be. That's when I realized, I don't think I want to go back to practicing medicine. I, I don't see myself living that life anymore. I see myself doing things to help healthcare professionals to prevent them from getting to the point where I got, where I was crying every day and losing it, um, and to make everybody happier and higher performing and less stressed in at work and at home as well. Um, so that's that's the answer. That is quite the origin story. Yeah. So how do you define meditation? What makes meditation meditation and not just sitting with your back straight and your eyes closed? So meditation, meditation and mindfulness and yoga all kind of like tie in together. Um, yoga is typically thought of as physical poses that people do in order either to get exercise, but, but, but traditionally it's physical poses that you would do to prepare yourself to sit in meditation. There's all sorts of different types of meditation. Meditation in the Buddhist tradition. So what I what I teach and what I practice isn't part of a religion. It, it comes from the the Vedas, which is a, a body of knowledge that predates religion. Yoga comes from the Vedas. Ayurveda, which is a holistic health practice that comes from India, comes from the Vedas. There's also Vedic warfare and Vedic architecture. That's where the neti pot comes from, and we use yeah, that all the exactly. time in otolaryngology. Exactly. Exactly. So. There's a ton of really, really practical knowledge that comes from the Vedas. Buddhism and Hinduism both also came from the Vedas. So Buddhism, those types of meditation practices tend to be more contemplative, meaning like you're sitting and you're focusing on something, you're concentrating either on a a word like a mantra or your breath or a physical sensation in your body or what someone is guiding you through. Those you tend to be sitting more upright and those tend to be more what have been adapted to mindfulness practices now. They are also mindfulness practices. But what we think of now as mindfulness is more adapted from the Buddhist lineage. Mine is more of more related to Hindu, but it's again, not at all religious um, and it's not Hinduism. But we are, the difference is we are shifting our physiologic state rather than maintaining alertness and maintaining focus, which is mindfulness. We are shifting our physiologic state when we meditate with my technique. Uh, the, the tradition is called Vedic meditation. I call it conscious health meditation for many reasons. But if you're listening to this and wanting to look up more about it, Vedic meditation is where you would go. It's also very similar to transcendental meditation. But I am not at all part of the TM corporation or company or, or organization in any way. So um, I'm an independent teacher. Wait, why did you just have to clarify that? I had to clarify that because TM is like an, uh, corp- it's a corporation and they teach people to meditate the same way I teach people to meditate, but they are, they're a bigger cultural phenomenon. Some, some people love it. Some people get a little bit turned off by it because it's a little bit, some people find it maybe a little bit aggressive or a little bit culty. I've actually never been to any of their 
specific meeting, so I can't speak for that. I'm just speaking for what people what people have reported back to me. But I try to take any culty trappings out of as as hard as I can to take any culty trappings out of this practice because for me getting back to your question of like, what is meditation? It's, it's physiology. It's, it's really so beautiful. I think one of the things that attracted to me, attracted me to it so much is it made sense scientifically and medically to me. I didn't have to stretch my brain to understand why it was working. It just was like, oh, okay, cool. That makes sense. So when we're meditating, rather than sitting with our back straight and focusing and trying to cultivate present moment awareness, which is awesome. And I think present moment awareness, present moment awareness is very important. That's mindfulness. That's not what I'm doing when I'm meditating, when I'm teaching people to meditate. We are using a mantra. It's just the one that we use is a Sanskrit sound and it has, there, there are many of them. I, I choose which one to give to my students, but there's many different mantras that when you use them with the technique that I teach, they allow your, your brain and body to settle into a distinct physiologic state that is separate from sleeping, waking, and dreaming that is two to five times more restful than sleep based on the SVO2. So you're actually more efficient. Your body becomes more efficient. The metabolism of oxygen from your from hemoglobin uh, is more efficient than sleep when you get to this physiologic state. And it's super easy to get to and everybody can do it. I've never had a student that can't get to it. So, And you're saying um, that's for conscious health meditation or for all forms of meditation? For what I teach. So people okay. often will say that meditation and mindfulness are the same thing. And they're like, okay. oh, I'm doing, I'm on a meditation app. I'm doing a guided meditation. You could consider that, but I, I think of those as more mindfulness and meditation is the actual transcending waking state consciousness and going to a different physiologic state, which then allows your body to, it's like defragging a computer. I also sort of think about it like a, a cooling protocol in the ICU. If you have cardiac arrest and then you go, you know, you get the cooling blankets and everything to to decrease inflammation and, and free radicals so that the body is able to kind of cool off and then recover more quickly and have less damage from the cardiac arrest. So that's interesting. So, so you're saying yeah. mindfulness meditation, for those who practice mindfulness meditation, you're saying, actually, that's not meditation. That's something different. We're using the same word, but actually these are two different things. Yes, I, okay. I believe so. And, and there would be people who would be like, absolutely not. What I'm doing is meditation. And I'm not going to argue with them. I don't care at all. It's just a different, you know, it's, it's on some level, it's semantics, but it's important to recognize that not all meditation is the same. Not all meditation requires sitting comfortably and maintaining alertness and fighting with your brain to make it do something that it's not built to do. Because the brain, just like the heart beats, and it's going to beat all day long, the mind has thoughts all day long. And so to try to control those or, or, or force the mind to do something other than that is very uncomfortable and challenging. And that's why you hear people being like, yeah, I meditated for three minutes today. And after you know, four weeks, I moved up to five minutes and then I stopped doing it because it was so hard. And I, you know, like, it's, not, it's much more difficult to stay with it when it feels so challenging. And so this is so restful and it feels so good that you come out of it feeling like you took the most amazing cat nap ever. So before we go take the deeper dive into the type of meditation that you practice, can we just break down the other forms first, just so we know what's out there and what the differences are? Sure, sure. Do you have specific ones or do you want me to just kind of... Well, I mean, you can... Why don't you start? And then if there are any others that, mm-hmm. that you don't mention, uh, then I'll ask. So mindfulness I already talked about. And mindfulness is a is a big umbrella that's going to 
cover a lot of other types of meditation. So, um, and again, I'm calling it meditation now. So I, I don't, it doesn't really matter to me. I just, everyone always assumes that what I do is mindfulness. And I just like to help educate people that there is a type of meditation out there that's very different. So mindfulness meditation requires, involves, you know, generally sitting comfortably, but with your back unsupported, often with your legs crossed, but often not. Um, and there's a, a, a an attempt to focus and cultivate your attention on something specific, a mantra, breath, your body. The idea is becoming more aware in the present moment of what's going on so that when you get into your real life, you are able to feel emotions coming up inside of you and you're not just completely a victim of of the emotions as they come up and you can be more aware and, and maybe change the way you're behaving a little bit. I've taken the mindfulness-based stress reduction course. I took that a few years after I learned Vedic meditation and I loved it and I thought it was great. Um, It required a lot of homework and it required a lot of time to practice it. And I just felt like, okay, if I have to pick between one of the two, I'm going to stick with Vedic because I've gotten such amazing results from it. And I can't meditate all day. I do want to, (laughs) I do want to actually live my life. Guided meditation or guided visualization is also a type of mindfulness because you're, for the most part, you're listening to what someone is saying and trying to put your attention on that and follow their instructions as they're talking you through the sound of a waterfall or how you feel when you're, you know, at the ocean and you hear the waves or imagining light coming through your head or, you know, out of your head, whatever that is, that's also cultivating awareness and attention. There's chakra meditations. So chakras are energy centers throughout the body that are very much a, a huge central integral part of yoga practice, which we don't always know when we go to a practice and get really sweaty. The yoga practice is all about opening and balancing these energy centers. I don't really get into chakras much, if any, at all when I teach my meditation, but that is a type of meditation where you go through, there's uh, one in the top of your head, uh, the corner, the, the, like your forehead in between your eyebrows, your throat, your, your chest, your heart chakra. There's a few other ones. Um, you can do a chakra meditation where you're focusing on those energy centers and and trying to open them or balance them. So that's another thing. And chakras are really cool. They're just not, I'm not, I don't have a expertise in them. And a lot of people will say, oh, that's too, that's too woo-woo for me. I don't want to get into that, but it's actually pretty, pretty interesting. And there's a lot of science behind it as well. So for anyone interested in taking it further, I, I do highly recommend that. Um, although studying with me isn't <laughs> is not going to get you that. What else? There's mantra meditation. So mantras, there's tons of different types of mantras. There's English ones and Sanskrit ones and German, you know, whatever language you speak, you can speak it in your own language or you can have it be some other ancient language. The ones that we use, and, and you can say them out loud. You can say them silently. You can try to focus on them and concentrate on them. In, in the type of meditation I teach, you're not focusing and concentrating on the mantra. It's actually designed to be forgotten, which maybe sounds a little confusing, but it's not, you're, you're not trying to focus on that mantra for 20 minutes um, as you're meditating. So mantra meditation is a, a huge umbrella that can include mindfulness type practices and it can include what I do, which is more of a transcendental type of meditation. And so that's an umbrella term that can be, there's not just one type of that. Um, are there other ones that I am? No, I mean, so, so that, so the, sorry, the mantra meditation, you use a mantra in transcendental meditation. So is mantra meditation the same as transcendental meditation? So there's transcendental meditation with like a capital T 
that's like the transcendental meditation brand. And then there is lowercase t transcendental, which is just like a meditation that you do that's going to shift your level of consciousness to a transcendental state. Kind of like, um, oh God, I'm trying to think of an example of, of that. You know, like Catholic, there was a lowercase C and then there was a capital C, yeah. but I'm, I, I don't remember. I was a religion major from college. I feel like what you're saying about transcendental meditation reminds me of like when Bruce Lee came to America and was teaching martial arts to Americans. And it was something that was supposed to be just within the Chinese community. And it was a problem that he was teaching it to, to non-Chinese people. And I, I feel like that's what you're saying about transcendental meditation. It's like, it's this predetermined community. And if you, you have to, you have to follow their rules and go within their rules and their scope and use their brand and sell their t-shirts and their coffee mugs. Yes. To some extent. And, and there, and, and some people who take the courses have no awareness of that and they just like learn to meditate and love it. And it's fine. And some people do get much more involved in it. And, and either way, they're teaching people to meditate really well. And, right. and, and people love the practice. So, but yeah, it is a little bit more, it's like a more of a cultural community type lifestyle kind of thing, maybe. There are types of meditation that allow you to shift to this other level of consciousness, this transcendental consciousness. They're not all capital transcendental T, you know, capital T transcendental, capital M meditation. Mantras can be used for a meditation that might help you transcend waking state. Mantras can also be used for mindfulness. If you think of, you know, people, OM is a mantra. People sometimes meditate chanting OM a bunch. So, and, and if, if, but also if you said, you know, I'm a, I'm a strong doctor and I'm going to kick ass at my job today. Um, you know, if you repeat that to yourself six times in the morning before that can also be considered a mantra and that's English and that's out loud. So, so there, that, that spectrum is very, very wide and, um, and not very specific. And so how did you arrive at conscious health meditation of all of them? And I think you've, you've really covered it, but you know, if you could take a deeper dive into, into, I mean, had you tried others? It sounds like you tried others after uh, you had already been a a conscious health meditator and even the term conscious health meditation. How did that, how did you arrive at that? Sure. When I learned it, I, I was, it's Vedic. So the community is Vedic meditation. Um, So I, I I was like zero to 60. I, I had no, I had done some like, you know, very little mindfulness stuff at spas or at yoga, but I had never really been, I wasn't like looking for meditation. I was just desperate and I was broken down enough that my consciousness cracked open just enough that I was receptive to something like this because I would not have been otherwise. Absolutely not would have, you know, if anyone listening to this is like, what is this crap? She's just woo woo, whatever. I was there. That was me. You know, I never would have been into anything like this. So so I was, I met the person who told me they meditated and I went to go get the teacher speak. And I honestly didn't research. Not only did I not in research other types of meditation, I didn't even research Vedic meditation. I just signed up for the course and it was awesome. So that, that's how I, it, I, I like to say it found me because I, it, it was sort of that moment in my life where something needed to, to change majorly. I call it conscious health meditation for a variety of reasons. Um, I had a, a physical space, like a, a meditation. I usually teach from my home, but I, when I first moved back to Atlanta, I, I grew up here. And so I'm, this is where I moved after my teacher training. I didn't end up going back to China. So since 2016, I've been here in Atlanta and I had the opportunity to open up like a commercial space, a, a meditation studio. And it wasn't anything I expected to do, but I did. And I decided the name of that was Conscious Health Meditation and Wellness. It was not 
but I was still teaching Vedic meditation. That's what I was still calling it. And then it sort of evolved over time because I teach physicians. There's also you, people listening here have probably heard all sorts of horror stories about, uh, you know, Vikram, Vikram and uh, Yogi Bhajan and, and lots of other different guru types who have founded big movements, who have done some not so good things to the people in their community. And there are some issues about that in my community as well. And I want, I didn't, none of that happened directly to me. So I didn't have this like big story to share, but I wanted to remove myself from any of that influence or connection. So that's another reason why I call it conscious health meditation. So I I like to be pretty forth, uh, you know, honest about that uh, when asked about it. But uh, so for me, it's, a natural progression, but also an intentional thing as well to, to, to keep it my own community and my own brand. So now speak to the skeptics out there. Mm. For those of us, because I've actually tried meditating before with my wife. We did, the, we did an app. We did it right before bed because that's really the only time that we were settled enough to do it. Um, yeah. Oh, man. I can't even remember the name of the app at this point. Uh, it's, one of the, it's one of the uber popular ones. Um, headspace probably or insight timer or something like that. Headspace. Yeah. Yes, it was headspace. And now we're back to just scrolling our phones back uh, right before bed. It's yeah. it, you know, it didn't it didn't stick. So, you know, convince me that I should be doing it. But from a more, you know, physician skeptic kind of tilt. Yeah, absolutely. And I I I love that you ask about this because I have people telling me they're like, it sounds too good to be true. And I agree. It does, <laughs> but it's awesome. I, I think the only, it doesn't, one thing I will say, it does not fix everything. And I, I was sort of sold that bill of goods a little bit when I learned. So I was like, Oh, if I just meditate enough, like everything in my life's going to be perfect. And that's not the way it works. But what I tell people and, and, and anyone that's going to tell you that what they're doing specifically is going to fix every problem in your life. You need to run away from them very quickly because that's, there's nothing that does that. There's always going to be a side effect or a downside or, a, or an incompleteness to something you're doing. I usually tell people 70 to 80% of things in your life are going to get 70 to 80% better. This is if you practice consistently. This is not just taking the course, but actually doing it, taking the course and then actually doing the practice. Some things in your life are going to get 50% better. Some things in your life are going to get 100% better. And some things are going to be like the positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia, but in a good way. It's not just that the bad things are going to get better, but there's going to be also these wonderful enrichments to your life that you didn't necessarily know you could have or that would that you were missing, but just what's, kind of what's show gonna up. What's going to get worse? What's going to get worse? You don't have to take that question seriously. No, I, I. the only thing that would get worse, I think, is when you start down the path of like, it can feel a little raw sometimes. If you start down the path, because this technique, as you're going to this two to five times more restful state than sleep, it's unwinding stresses from your entire lifetime. Stresses that stress scars that we carry around with us. If you think about a song you hear on a radio that might remind you of a breakup or a particularly painful time in your life and your your friend is rocking out to the song and you're like, oh, turn the song off and your heart's pounding and you're sweating and you're crying a little bit. You can't bear to hear, but someone else is having a completely different experience. It's something in you that has this stress scar that is that you're carrying with you. Or maybe you smell something that reminds you of your grandmother's kitchen from when you were eight years old and you're like, oh, this smells just like I could, I'm, I'm right there with her. God, you know, we carry these stress scars around with us and they build up this wall around us, kind of like layers of an onion, I guess. And so you get kind of tough and you feel like maybe you're a little numb to the world. 
but it's a survival mechanism. So it's sometimes easier to go through life not feeling things, but also you don't usually feel the good stuff either when you're that shut down. And I think for physicians in particular, with all the stuff that we see that just gets like layered upon layered upon layered upon us that we're expected to just internalize, that can happen. So as you start to peel back those layers, that's another difference between mindfulness and and this, what I'm calling, how I'm just differentiating mindfulness and meditation. Mindfulness is great in burning off the stress right then. Mindfulness will help get you out of your stressed out brain right in that moment and and calm the stress down. But what this technique is doing, it's it's shifting your, your nervous system from sympathetic overdrive, survival mode to parasympathetic activity. And that's a healing mode. It's rest and digest and and healing. And so we're actually able to reverse damage that's that we've been stress damage that we've been carrying around with us for days, weeks, months, years, decades. So this stuff, as it comes out, usually in meditation, sometimes you'll be meditating and you'll be like, Ooh, I'm anxious. Huh? Or I'm feeling annoyed. Or why is my, you know, spouse making that weird noise when I'm trying to meditate or whatever it is. That's just stress coming out of you. And also as you start to become, as that stress starts to peel to come out of you, you start, it's like peeling back the layers of the onion again. It can sometimes feel more raw and more vulnerable in there, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful space, but it's, and it's something that's happening gradually. But I always tell my students, it's not like you're going to stop having emotions. I'm not, you're not going to forget that these bad things happened. You're, you might feel it more. You might feel, you might cry more at commercials. If you're watching, if you ever watch commercials anymore, more emotionally affected by beautiful things around you as well. Um, because you no longer have that wall of stress around you. So for the most part, it's beautiful, but for some people at times, it can feel a little sensitive. Uh, but that's why you have me, when, when you take my, my um, live course with me, you have me as your teacher for life. So you can email me and text me with questions at any time. And hey, I'm feeling this and I'll explain why. So it's not like the apps don't do that. You know, you can't write into the app and say, hey, I had this experience while I was meditating. Any thoughts? Because it, it, it isn't a human being with expertise. So I would say that would be the only or the, the only downside as a long-winded answer to that question, but I think it's an important one. Absolutely. What's some of the science behind conscious health meditation? Did I answer your skeptic question, by the way? Uh, well, I think that's going to be more in the science aspect okay. of it. Okay. The other thing I, I will say is that it's experiential. No one, no one quite understands what they're about to get, their sums, get themselves into unless they know somebody who did it. Um, and even so, you still don't know how awesome it's going to be because no one believes that they're actually going to be able to meditate and that they're actually going to do it. And that they'll, everyone says, oh, my mind is the only one. I am the only one with monkey mind. I am the only one who has thoughts all day long that get louder and crazier when I sit down to meditate. Um, I'm the only broken one. You know, I'm, I'm too, my brain's too active. Everybody says that. So, so it, I don't have to dis, I just, you know, learn the technique through the class and you will experience what it's like rather than me having to convince you. So it's kind of nice people, you know, definitely by the fourth part of the course, but generally well before that are meditating very easily and successfully. So the question you had said, the science behind it. I mean, there's, they've done studies on mindfulness, a lot of that. That's one of the great things about mindfulness is when it's been adapted and and secularized from the more Buddhist uh, religious type practices to a more secular version there've been a lot of studies on benefits for, for pain control and, and depression and anxiety. 
the Transcendental Meditation Organization has a lot of money and they have done a lot of scientific studies as well on this practice. So what I teach again is, is pretty much identical because my, my teacher trained in that organization for 30 years and then, and then he left. So that organization has a bunch of studies. They have, but like anything, you know, if you, I remember there's one study about rifaximin preventing hepatic encephalopathy. And it was this like, oh my God, this amazing results, but it was sponsored by the drug company. So you always want to be a little careful when the study is sponsored by the organization that is um, profiting from from the intervention. But so there's great data there. And, and so there's data on, on improved school performance for kids, improved depression, anxiety, pain. And, and I'm talking specifically for the type that I teach, but there's there's not a lot the meditation can't help. <laughs> it makes you, it's, they've done studies where it, it prevents secondary events for coronary artery disease and people who have already had events. It can lower blood pressure. Like aspirin. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, it's, you get the more benefits, the, the more consistent you are with the practice. But so there's some pretty cool data. And I think overall, the, 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 the body of the data suggests that it has a lot of really great impacts. But I think that studying meditation is really hard. Because I, I know that like when my students are, are coming to me, when they're coming and they're choosing to learn to meditate because they really want to learn to meditate, they don't like, that's the choice that they've made for themselves. They're going to be much more open and excited about it and, and committed to it than if it's something that like work is paying for, for example, yeah. that they're There's like, sure, why not? bias there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so and I, you know, I think that medit- it's like a little slippery. It's, I, I think it's a little bit hard to pin down and it can be frustrating. But when you do the practice, you feel the benefits. It, it almost stops mattering about the data because it's like, well, I'm doing it. <laughs> I have this practice. I'm doing it. I feel amazing. Data is great. Data helps make things more, um, particularly with something like meditation, it makes it more accepted by the mainstream scientific community. But it's ancient knowledge that's been around for thousands of years, if not longer. It's it's science it's science, but in a different presented differently, you know. I wonder if there's a minimally effective dose, right? Like at some point, if you don't do it for long enough, you're really not going to see benefits, and if you do it for longer, it starts to be diminishing returns. I wonder if there's an inflection point. Sure, somewhere. sure. Well, in my in my technique, from, from what I've been taught, at least, so the the, the man who started the transcendental meditation movement, who brought this technique over from people who were mostly like monks and, and people who meditated all day long, he, he adapted this technique to people like you and me who have jobs and families and eat pizza and live in the world and drive cars and stuff. And so he, from what I've been told, tested it out. So right now it's 20 minutes twice a day, but like, will it work with an hour once a day or two hours, you know, and, and 20 minutes twice a day in this, in this type of meditation and in other types of meditation seems to be what people come out with as the, the sweet spot. I, I teach my course live and in my live course, I do a ceremony on the first day and Sanskrit, beautiful, but it's, you know, definitely for me, it was outside the box for what I was used to, but I, I was, I didn't care. I thought it was lovely. I give a mantra to each person and I'm teaching a practice that's 20 minutes twice a day. Um, and my students are getting, there are not 6 billion mantras. So not every student gets a different one, but it's, it's individualized to each student. I also teach an online course and both of my courses are CME accredited. You can get CME for taking my courses. My, and I'm getting somewhere with this, I promise. My online course, I use a, this, everyone gets the same mantra, 
And it's 15 minutes twice a day instead of 20 minutes twice a day. The type of mantra I use in the online course is just slightly less powerful because the students who take that don't have that full access to me for a lifetime. And it's important to have that ongoing contact with the teacher. But even with a different mantra, a different, slightly different type of mantra that's used in the same way, and the 15 minutes twice a day, my students are having incredible results who are taking it online. So you don't necessarily need to go above 20 minutes twice a day. It's like your receptors, your bliss receptors are already full and there's no need to stay in. Once you're wet, you're wet. Um, and if you think about like dunking yourself in a swimming pool, you, you don't need to dunk longer to get more wet. You're already wet. But the 15 minutes also has been quite effective. So I think you can go a little bit less to that, less than that, the 20 minutes. But generally, I say less than 13 minutes is not going to be as effective. Interesting. So where can people find those courses? My website, I have a website, meditationinmedicine.com. And that's going to have all the information about my online courses, um, my retreats that I do. So I have a, a retreat for women in healthcare that I do in October at Miraval Spa. It's the most amazing spa ever. And that's all types of women in healthcare, uh, but we're not, we're, we're, it's basically meditation and enjoying the spa. And then I do a little PowerPoint free little group lecture on Vedic knowledge and how it relates to life as a woman in health in healthcare. So um, that's really focused on the meditation and the stress reduction. I do another uh, event called Transformed with, with my colleague, Marjorie Stiegler, who that's more of a professional development, life transformational event. And um, we do that in January in Mexico. So registration for both of those are open for October of this year and January of next year. And then the online courses uh, as well. And I, I, I do another technique called tapping, which we haven't really gotten into here, but that's something else I do. That's another really cool technique that helps people more with the like, specifics. If, if you want a, a, global, a global life uh, overhaul, you want to get more efficient at your job. You want to be happier. You want to be less reactive. Meditation is what you want to do. But if you have a specific thing you're trying to get over, um, you're having specifically anxiety or a d- difficult decision to make or a phobia or trauma, difficult relationships, That's you can use this thing called tapping. So I have tapping programs as well on that website. What exactly is tapping? So tapping is also called the emotional freedom technique or EFT. And it is a technique that I first learned about when I was at a, teaching my meditation course at a medical conference. The psychiatrist and psychologist came and they talked about using tapping and a few other similar modalities with their veteran patients at the VA who had PTSD and, and the incredible results that they were getting. So I heard about it from a very, maybe a, a sanctioned inside the box source. And then I've heard about it more outside of that and people, it's it's similar to maybe energy work, but you you use the same meridians as in acupuncture or traditional Chinese medicine. But instead of using needles, you tap on them. And most of the meridians we use are on the face and the chest. And you are basically tapping. And and it works really, really the the most effectively if you work one-on-one with a coach, but you can also find free tapping videos on YouTube if you want to. You say negative things, whatever it is that's bothering you. Let's say you have a phobia of flying. As you tap through the meridians, you're going to be saying out loud, I have this fear of flying. I'm afraid that we're going to crash. I'm afraid that I'm going to you know, lose my life. I'm afraid that whatever it is you're afraid of, you say it over and over again as you're tapping and it actually sends calming signals to the hippocampus as you're saying it. So it decouples that trigger from stress. And so the hippocampus is then not sending that stress message to the amygdala and the amygdala is not going off into fight or flight. So you basically are changing the way your brain 
is reacting in the face of things that used to be very stressful. And it works very quickly. It's very powerful. It's incredible. I love it so much. And the results, if, if, if done right, are they're permanent. Like you don't have to keep tapping to get rid of the phobia. Once the phobia is gone, the phobia is gone. So um, I do that as well. I have an online course about using tapping for physician burnout. Um, And I do a lot of tapping workshops at my retreats as well because people love it. And you can do it very, you don't have to get a full training in it to be able to tap on your own. That's pretty much everything I do and teach people is to be a self-sufficient practitioner at that. So I'm not guiding people through meditation. I'm teaching people a specific technique that they can do on their own without any apps or they put their phone away, they meditate on their own. Same thing with tapping. Yes, you can work with me in person, but once you've done enough, a few sessions, then you are familiar with what to do and you can just kind of keep it simple and treat yourself with it. It's interesting. It sounds, it sounds familiar. It sounds similar to exposure therapy for phobias mm-hmm. where you just, you know, yes. you start thinking about it and you look at pictures of it and then you get, you know, a little closer to it and then you know, eventually you just become uh, habituated to it. Yes. And, and the only difference is that as you were doing those sequential exposures, you will tap as you're saying out loud what emotion you're having about it, what the fear is or what you're afraid is going to happen. And so it happens like even faster and even more. Um, it's very streamlined. Great. So you, you, you don't have to, you can just think about it and tap on it. You don't actually have to like do it when you're on an airplane in order to benefit from it. So you can do it sequentially like you were just suggesting as well. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us today. And your website, that's where you can find all the courses. That's jillweiner.com, correct? Uh, well, so I have, I have so jillweiner.com, W-E-N-E-R. That's my like website for everything, but I meditationinmedicine.com is my website that's more geared towards doctors to the programs that I do for doctors. So if you want to see the more doctor-specific programs, meditationinmedicine.com. And then I'm on social media as well. Uh, Instagram and Twitter are at jillweinermd. Remember, it's W-E-N-E-R. And then Facebook. I have way too many professional Facebook pages and it's Instagram and Twitter are much better if you're like actually wanting to follow me and, and see what I put out into the world. More streamlined. More streamlined. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, I tend to post there more often. Great. We'll include all that in the show notes. Again, thank you very much for your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was lots of fun. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.